0: Lone Star 187 is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Case File 09. Tadea Benz.
1: Hello, welcome everyone. It's podcast day. So where are we going to be this week? This week, we're going to be in
2: Amarillo, Texas. This is a really, really strange case. Like I randomly found it on a newspaper website whenever I was researching a previous case and um it was just a little not even a full paragraph snippet about what happened and damn did I find a giant can of worms, right?
1: Yeah, it was like when I started researching what I thought was just a simple case became something so much more that I've never
2: Yeah, it's read. really crazy. You guys need to put that seatbelt on because this is going to be a crazy ride. Before we continue, I want to throw out some thank yous to our producer Russell. Hey, hey, hey! For the magic that he does for us, taking out all of our ums and our our bad talk and our
0: bass backwards. S- some of the
2: stuff he leaves in, so you guys can laugh at us. We want to thank our mom for babysitting the children, so we don't have to stop and continue to yell at them upstairs. So, yeah, and all of you guys for listening. So,
1: and just please send us cases if you yes. are interested in any. Are you hear some that you want to know more info about? We'd love to get some feedback
0: or some money. Uh, sorry, no.
2: Well, we'll take your money if you want to send it, but we're not demanding
1: it. <laughs>
0: they oh, <are>. Russell.
2: Is. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, so let's let's get started. In the early morning hours of November the first, nineteen eighty one, in Amarillo, Texas, at Saint Francis Convent, not to be confused with Covenant, which Don't we did a that. few times. Yeah,
2: this is not the witches; these are the nuns.
1: One of the nuns named Sister Tadea Benz. Had not arrived to Mass. She usually was there every morning, was always there helping, and she wasn't there. So it's one not of, like she had a long drive to work. Unless she had a motorized scooter, it might take her a while because right. she was older. She was 76. Okay. And so she didn't arrive, so one of the other nuns goes to find her. And when she comes down to the room, she notices her door is closed, which wasn't like her. Since she was 76, she was hard of hearing, so she usually slept with the door open. So she opened the door, and she found Sister Tadea Benz laying on the floor. She had a sheet covering her. The sister that found her did see some blood on her pillow and some on her eye and a little bit on her face. Her first instinct is natural causes. She's 76 Mm -hmm. and she thought, well, she probably just rolled off the bed and now she's on the ground. There wasn't any sign of foul play or any struggle at the time. So she goes to find another one of the nuns to tell her what's happened. And uh, another nun goes in there and sees what's happened. So they call a doctor in. They call the doctor. The doctor comes in. He said, yeah, it's most likely natural causes. We're going to send her to the funeral home. So the doctor, does he examine her? He does not pull the sheet off of her. Okay. He just looks at her. There so was some no. blood around her neck.
0: The fuck is he scared of dead bodies?
1: Uh, he's a doctor. <laughs> and there's blood on her left eye pooling around her eyelid and uh, you know, around her around her neck. But that's all they see. And I think we, you and I discussed this, that obviously they, with all the good that the nuns see and the good hearts, they don't see all the violence we see every day. Out in the real world, they feel that... It's most likely natural causes and they said like her maybe to the funeral Maybe she home.
2: hit her head, like the injury to her eyes. Maybe that's where she landed, like her face landed on the floor before the rest of her body or something maybe. I don't know.
1: One of the sisters said that what she saw was consistent with hemorrhaging. Okay. And I guess, I think what she's meaning is maybe she had a stroke. And so she said that the marks on her neck she thought was from sister Tadea maybe clawing at her neck because she couldn't breathe for some reason, and that was what they thought. So they send her off to the funeral home. So a few hours later, some of the nuns find some broken glass in the commons area. So the nuns call the police, and the police come out to investigate a possible burglary. While the police were there investigating, the nuns also tell the police about the death of Sister Tadea, that they thought maybe she had a fall or she died of natural causes. So the police say, we're going to contact the funeral home just to make sure nothing happened and we're going to order an autopsy. Medical examiner does an autopsy and when they examine her, they find that there are multiple marks on her body and there's blood actually around her thighs. Whoops. So the autopsy determined that she had been raped, beaten, and strangled. Definitely not natural causes there. And her left eye was blackened, and her body was covered with gouges, knuckle marks, and stab wounds from her thighs to her neck, and her larynx was crushed.
2: Damn.
1: She's a nun.
2: So wait, so that means when they they found her in November, what night was she killed? Halloween night. That's what I thought. So on Halloween night, someone decides it's a good idea to beat strangle and rape a nun in the convent
1: on halloween yep the police go back to the room because at this point the nuns have cleaned up half the crime they've already taken her sheets off her bed Mm -hmm. because now her room can be given to another nun that wants to join
0: this is a recurring theme on the show you know
1: yeah it just seems like people People just going
0: through and people don't know
2: oh it's a crime scene let's go clean it up (laughs) for the cops so they don't get the neighbors (laughs) yeah or the, or, or the other nuns in the convent because it's usually the church that goes and does that shit.
1: So the police go in and they find two knives in the room. One of them was bent. A and butter,
2: that was a butter knife. Correct. Like
1: but it had no blood on it. Mm-hmm. And then there was another knife that did have blood on it, but they had no fingerprints on it. They confiscated the bloody sheets and the bed that her Sister Benz was on and nothing was stolen from her room. They didn't see anything out of the ordinary. Just like when the first sister went in, she didn't see anything missing from her room. Which I don't really know what all they would have in there.
2: Their crucifixes and their Bibles and
0: perhaps some liquor.
2: Maybe some whiskey. Yeah. I know that's what I would need if I
0: was if I were married a nun. to Jesus. Well, then you wouldn't be Jesus. a nun. Yes, you would. You'd they just be judge Catholic. Me.
1: Yeah, which they are. She was Catholic. Unfortunately, Sister Tadea Benz, of course, has passed away. So she is eulogized on Monday. So she was killed Friday night and she was found Saturday, and they've. Realized between Saturday and Sunday that this horrific crime has happened. And on Monday, she is eulogized by...
0: Okay, what is eulogized? What does that mean?
1: Well, when at funerals, they give eulogies where they uh, talk about her life. And since she didn't have any kids or anything, she's the the bishop of the convent is the one that, that did the eulogy. Okay, thank you. They described her as a martyr and a daughter of God. 500 people attended the eulogy. Wow. Which I don't even know how many people were in Amarillo at the time. And I know there weren't 500 nuns in there. So Bishop... Matheson, he is the one who performed the eulogy. Mourners formed a two-mile funeral procession to Lano Cemetery where she was buried. Captain Jimmy Davis stated while he was standing outside, he did an interview with a reporter and said he was very worried that a lot of the evidence may have been destroyed Mm -hmm. because the sisters didn't know, but that he had no doubt that the sisters were acting in good faith when they thought the death was natural. Yeah. Given her age and, I mean, you would think if she was stabbed a bunch that there'd be blood splatter Everywhere, but unless he or she stabbed her after she actually died, then maybe there wouldn't be as much blood. Yeah, It is
2: interesting that that it wasn't a bloody, bloody crime scene.
1: Mm -hmm. So previous to Sister Tadea, there was another woman by the last name of Bryson that was killed in the same exact way, just shortly before this happened. So on Friday night, which was a week to the day that Sister Tadea was killed, a 77-year-old woman in Amarillo was beaten and found incoherent. She had bruises all over her. She said she had been strangled. Someone had tried to rape her.
2: She was concerned that what happened to Sister Benz was going to happen to her.
1: So she was sent to the hospital whenever she was found Friday night, and she was in a coma. So they had no idea what was happening. So obviously they had close eyes on her to find out. As soon as she wakes up, we want to know mm-hmm. to her. Who, who it was, what happened to her. Did she get a good look? Did she happen to know her attacker? Because most likely this person's connected to the last Mm -hmm. two crimes. There were a lot of similarities. The only similarity in her case that the others didn't have was that sister Tadea Benz and Bryson had white shirts crumpled up next to their bodies that most likely belonged to the killer. And this woman did not. Also, he left this one, the 77-year-old woman, who her name was not listed, alive and she wasn't actually raped. So...
2: Like maybe he was interrupted or something? Yeah, or he,
1: exactly. Or she fought him off enough that he was gone. I'm not sure. But it shows that there's something could have potentially happened the same. So she was um, put in the hospital.
2: Does she, was she able to give the cops any kind of information on her assailant?
1: Not initially in this first part um, because she was, you know, in a coma.
2: So there's some interesting information about things that were going on in Amarillo at this time. Clearly, we've got two women that were raped and murdered and one elderly woman that was beaten, but not to the extreme like the other two. Police Chief Jerry Neal had only been with uh, Amarillo PD for a few months before the murders of Bryson and Benz. Before he arrived at the department, it, it was suffering from... Very intense criticism after a series of botched capital murder cases, which ultimately led to acquittals. There were costly appeals and new new trials for the whole thing. So it was just a giant mess. There was a lot of confusion. The cases weren't worked very well. There was a tremendous duplication of services. They were all doing the same thing. There was this huge competition between the Sheriff's Department and the Amarillo Police Department. Instead of, like, working together to try to solve it, it was like, who can solve it first? They didn't share information. They didn't share evidence. And one of the detectives was quoted as saying, as a matter of fact, it was who could solve the case first. And so they elected this new district attorney. His name is Danny Hill. He arranged a ceasefire between the sheriff's office and the police department, forcing them to work together, right? So Amarillo
1: Amarillo at this time was... In chaos, It was really
2: chaotic. When he took office in January of 81, they said that there were 10 pending capital murder cases left over from the previous administration. So he was under a lot of pressure to get those things solved pretty quickly. His first official action within hours of being sworn in was to convince the county commissioners to hire a full time medical examiner to do autopsies and also testify for the state and homicide cases. So they brought in, who was handpicked by the way, Dr. Ralph Erdman. He was hired in October of 1981 and his first homicide assignment was Sister Benz. coincidentally. So by him coming in and taking over, he gained huge popularity with everyone in the area. And he also promised to rid Amarillo of its evil plague by seeking the death penalty often and swiftly. And anytime that he was interviewed, he constantly uh, quoted the New Testament, you know, because I mean, he was in the Bible belt, everybody in there, Jesus, Jesus, God, God, not that there's anything wrong with that. But you know, he knew his audience. And he knew that if he spoke the word to them, when it came time, he would have that army of people behind him. So to set the scene, it mm-hmm. was really chaotic and they saw him as the guy that's gonna come in and clean up all the shit and get rid of all the dirt bags and then Emerald was gonna be perfect. After
0: yeah, he's that. trying to put a conveyor belt into the yeah. fucking death chamber. Yeah, it's
2: like go, go, go. So clearly we're he's already setting it up to solve these cases as quickly as possible. And it doesn't sound like they care if it's right or wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of getting it done. Science hill delivered. Next, 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 next. Well, so he
1: has to own up to the precedent that he set for himself. You know, he came in promising all these things. Exactly. So he has to deliver. He has to deliver. Regardless of what, what he has to do to m- meet that, he's going to do whatever he has to. Yep. November 5th, 1981, they have arrested their number one suspect- His name is Fernando Flores. He's 28. He's a Cuban refugee, and he's arrested initially on a burglary and attempted rape charge. Mm -mm. And based on what he did there, they feel like he's the guy for Sister Tadea Benz. There's enough similarities to research it, right? And the event occurred four to five miles from where Sister Tadea Benz was killed. So they get microscopic hair and fabric samples from Sister Tadea Benz's room. They take samples off of him, and no one in Amarillo or even Texas at this point has the capacity or the knowledge to do any kind of DNA testing or testing on these type of fabrics and hair. So they send them to Washington, D.C. to have them analyzed by the FBI crime lab because they want to make sure Mm that— They get the best of the best in there. Danny Hill is quoted as saying that he f- is very confident that they have found the right guy, and even though he cannot speak English, they oh. feel like he's definitely the one because he was a Cuban refugee. Once he came over here, he lived in a convent. I don't know. Can they live in a convent? I don't. No, think No, so. that's for women only. So he lived. A community in, house. He lived in a, and I guess a maybe in a parish. But he lived in a Catholic community church that had a section of Cuban refugees where the Hmm. Catholics would take them in, they would feed them, they would educate them, and once they became 18, they released them. But it was. It was like in a church.
0: He lived in the Catholic mission.
1: Once he was brought here and this Catholic community took care of him, they have his whole background of where he came from, what kind of family he was a part of, and his lifestyle. Well, the FBI contacted them and they said, we're not going to give you any information about his background. That's none of your business. They're like, well, it kind of is because he's in... He's living He's committed this crime for sure, and we're pretty sure he did this. And they said... All we'll tell you is that he moved to Amarillo four months ago. That's helpful. But they won't tell him if he ever did this as a child or if he came from a troubled background from Cuba. They wouldn't tell him anything. That doesn't make any sense. Like if he's... It seems like they would work together, but whatever. Yeah. So they called in the interpreter and they still couldn't get any information. So they have nothing. They go to immigration services And the FBI, when they bring people over, they always get fingerprints on the refugees because they're now in the system as far as being in America, even though they're not a resident yet, but they want to know that they're here. All they know for sure based on his fingerprints is that he did come to Amarillo about four months prior and he was doing manual labor around the town. He was doing some construction and whatever construction company he worked for, because he was a refugee, because of who he was, they demanded him to do fingerprints in case anything was stolen. They want to make sure they could link him back. Mm -hmm. So when those fingerprints were put in the database for the construction company is when they knew he came to Amarillo. So he had been there for four months. And Danny Hill, of course, stated saying, uh, if he's charged, he will go down for the death penalty and I'll try him here. If not, I'll ship him back down to Fidel Castro and let him handle him. Prisoners down there are a hell of a lot worse than the prisoners here. Wow. He might be the salty one. He might be. He might be. So on Saturday... November the 7th, which was a week after everything happened, mm-hmm. the 77-year-old woman has come to, and she is ready to talk to investigators. Oh, this is the woman that
2: was in the coma. Okay, good. Yes, yeah, so good. She's,
1: she is awake now. And so when they go talk to her, it finds out she just had a fall. What? She just fell. She was on a ladder in her house, and she fell off the ladder. And she dreamed somewhat when she fell off the ladder that somebody had pushed her off the ladder, and she had thought so much about... What had happened to Miss Bryson, she thought that's what happened to her. And she hit her head really hard, and that's why she was in a coma. So, the investigators were very frustrated. Because her initial story didn't make sense, they had her hypnotized in the hospital. And under hypnotization, it was found that she just had a fall. So, she and was bas- telling the truth. And possibly. The second time. Correct. Correct. Damn. When they went to her house, they found no evidence of forced entry. All the doors were locked except for the back door where the paramedics came to get her. What's she doing on a ladder? Although I can't
2: say anything. I'd probably be on ladders and shit at that age too because I'm just going to think I can do whatever I want.
1: So at this time, they're still waiting on the test results on the hairs and the fibers. And two days later... The fibers come back, and unfortunately, they don't match Flora's. The mm. fingerprints don't match, and the fibers on her gown don't match the clothes that any of the clothes he had in his bag or where he was staying, nothing matched. So he is now... No longer a person of interest, and he is released. Back to Amarillo or back to Fidel Castro? I guess that's up to him. How Well, he behaves.
2: So I have conflicting reports on how this comes about, but there is a psychic that initially they say that this psychic worked with the Amarillo Police Department in the past and had helped them solve some cases. But then I also read that she approached the police department on her own. Her nickname is Bubbles. She tells them, she said she had a dream, and this dream was about the killer of the nun. So she says that there was a teenage male that lived near the convent, so she tracked him down and found his house. She said that in her dream, she saw an image of a man who had an Abraham Lincoln-like face. She saw an address in her dream, and she saw the words Mr. Clyde. So she tracked down the address, and at this house, there was a young teenage male that lived there who, similar to Abe Lincoln, if you look at his face, it's very similar. He has a dog and a little doghouse in the backyard with Mr. Clyde written in big red spray paint on it. That's crazy. She tells them all this information. They go to the house. Well, this house happens to just be right across the street from the convent.
1: Oh, wow. What
2: do you think happens there?
1: Well, of course, I'm sure they arrest him.
2: They arrest him.
1: And what is his name?
2: His name is Johnny Frank Garrett. He is 17 years old or kid.
1: And I read he was arrested with no resistance. And I thought, well, if he didn't think he did anything wrong, why would he resist? Right. You know, just like if the cops came to my door and said you're under arrest for blah, blah, blah. I'd say, okay, take me. I didn't do anything and I'll show you I didn't do anything. Mm -hmm.
2: So this is a little dangerous because- You would
0: cry and beg for mercy.
1: (laughs) But I would do what they asked me to. I'm not going to fight I would be
2: saying, what am I being arrested for? I would continue. Like they have to tell you. Yeah. Yeah. What am I being arrested for? If
1: they told me you're going to jail for this, even though I didn't do it, I would still go with them. Well, you don't have a choice. Because I don't want to fight and then get a You just be crying in the back of the police car. I yeah, know I've already I been there, done that. I don't Son want to do it of again. Bitch. So
2: now this is really dangerous because they don't really have a whole lot of suspects. They just let their first important person of interest go. And now the psychic goes, Oh, I know who it was. And he just happens to live across the street. In their mind, this psychic is credible. So now they think they have a suspect, right? He is arrested and held without bond in the Potter County Jail. During the charging phase, his mother, her name is Charlotte Cameron, covered her ears as the judge reads what Garrett's being charged for. I guess that was too much for her to hear what happened to the nun. And the police said that they had been investigating Garrett as early as two or three days after the murder, but at that point, they had nothing to link him to the slaying.
1: And weren't they investigating him because someone said they saw him running, running. Mm-hmm. around the convent or across They saw him the running from it. Yeah. Late and, and it was at night. night. Yeah.
2: yeah. But they did finally connect him. And this is how. They reviewed police reports about Garrett having an argument with a priest at Alamo Catholic High School. So they were aware of him from a burglary investigation. So they decided to compare his fingerprints since they already had them on file with those taken from the convent and they matched. So they had, his fingerprints were on the knife that was found underneath her bed, and his fingerprints were found on the back of the headboard.
1: And the butter knife had no blood on it, correct?
2: No, and it was bent, like it had been used to break something or, I don't know. It was bent, like there's pictures, you can see it. And again, I mentioned he lived across the street. Oh my God, she super was super with butter
0: knife? No. no. Oh, thank God. No, there was, no. That, okay. that wasn't
2: the murder weapon.
1: <laughs> So he's arrested November of 1981, and his trial starts August of 1982. And his lawyers that he has are court-appointed, and they're awful. In the documentary, the mom even says when she went to visit him in jail, she asked him, how often are you meeting with your lawyers to prepare for the trial? And he told his mom, I haven't heard or seen from my lawyers since I've been here. So six months into him being in jail, awaiting trial, none of his lawyers have come and said, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is what you're going to say. Did you really, you know, did you really do it? They don't go through any of that coaching, which is insane because he's 17 about, by the time he goes to trial, he'll be 18. Mm-hmm.
2: He's about to be 18 though, because he was born in, in December. Mm-hmm. So
1: so at trial, he'll be 18. Mm-hmm. It's been discussed he has some mental delay in different people. So you would think they would be spending more time with him to prepare for the trial. And six months into him being in jail, he hasn't even been briefed on what his responsibilities are or what to expect in trial. Well, and he doesn't
2: understand it in a capacity to know that he needs to be asking, Mm -hmm. where are my attorneys? What's going on with my trial? I need help. I need them to tell me what to say and do. But he doesn't understand that he needs to do that.
0: And you're a public defender in Waco. Amarillo. Amarillo. Sorry. And you have to defend a kid who raped and murdered a nun.
2: That sounds like a tough job. That
0: sounds like. But you you still need to do your do your damn job, though. That's someone's son. Without pride or prejudice, yeah, you're supposed to. But I mean, it's a human. Clearly, they gave up on him good point.
1: So the defense attorneys, like all defense attorneys, go to the judge and ask for a change of venue because obviously here we are, a somewhat small town of Amarillo. Everyone knows what's happened, especially with how gruesome it was and it happening to a nun. Everyone knows what's happened. Mm -hmm. And the judge doesn't even let the defense attorneys finish (laughs) at the hearing. They say it's happening here. DA already said it's happening here. Danny Hill wants it here. It's going to be here. That's where it's going to be. This where
2: his army is. He's not leaving his army.
1: The trial begins on August 26th of 1982. And the first person to take the stand is Sister Angela Martinez, who was the one who found Sister Tadea Benz who describes what I had stated earlier when I set the scene of her f- her finding her. Another nun takes the stand who states she had seen Johnny Frank Garrett many times outside the convent, but that was pretty much all her testimony was for. She was still for the prosecution. She was not on the defensive She defense was testifying side. on behalf of the prosecution. Correct. And just being cross-examined. Correct. On August 31st of 1982, Janet Weaver, who was Garrett's half-sister, took the stand for the defense and explained that Johnny was at home all night and that they played checkers, they listened to music, and they were together from 10.30 p.m. till 3 a.m. And she knows that because he went to bed at 3 a.m. and then she went to bed in the time of death of Sister Tadea was sometime around midnight. Mm-hmm. So there was no way that he could have been there since he was at home with her. The next day, September 1st, 1982, Johnny takes the stand. He tells the jury that the prosecution had stated that he choked and raped Sister Tadea Benz while drunk on whiskey and two hits of acid and that he broke into a lower window of the convent early morning of November the 1st and he went into the nun's room who awoke when he choked her until she passed out. Then he had sex with her which she did not want. He States, this was all made up. He said, I never said any of that. If you look at the confession, I never signed it. So they completely made that up. I never said that. He did say he was in the convent on the day of the murder. Mm -hmm. He said that he walked through the front door around noon. There was no one there. And he found a butter knife in the kitchen. And he went upstairs looking to steal stereo equipment and some of the crucifixes because he said some of them were gold. Some of them were dipped in white gold or platinum gold. And he would take them to the pawn shop. So he took the knife and he was using it to pry open drawers, which which is why it was bent. And he said he went into Sister Tadea Benz's room and stole a crucifix from behind her bed. And he leaned on the bed, put his hand on the headboard, got the crucifix off the wall, heard noise, dropped the knife, and took off running. He didn't know that was Sister Tadea Benz's room at the time, which is why he said when he was arrested, he didn't tell them because he didn't know a lot of the nuns by name. He knew some of them, but not all of them. And with them being in the lifestyle they were in, it's not like they got really close. One of the sisters that testified for the prosecution stated that this couldn't have happened because at noontime when they would be eating, the front door would have been locked. And there's no way he could have gotten in. But people make mistakes. They could have said, I mean, we've said many times, yeah, I locked the back door and we did. So
0: got home and all our shit was (laughs) gone.
1: So the next day, September 2nd, an eight man, four woman jury found him guilty. After five hours, as soon as Johnny heard the verdict, he yelled and sobbed and screamed to them, I did not kill her. Deliberations continued on whether or not he would get life in prison or he would die by lethal injection. The defense attorneys begged the jury to not find him guilty for murder and get lethal injection just because he was in the room. And that's all that they could prove. Because at the time, the semen and the vaginal fluids that were found, they were only able to find out what blood type the man had based on the semen. They were not at a point with DNA that they yeah. could find the person linked to the semen just so the blood, type. the blood type of the semen wasn't his but this didn't matter it's just such
2: bullshit what mm. the fuck <laughs> jacked up for sure
1: and defense just said yes he was in the room we can prove that but we can't prove anything else and defense wanted them to understand that he was dumb he had a low mentality he was a thief he was a burglar he was a dope addict and alcoholic all by the age of 17 and he lived close by so all of that is true but there's nothing that proves that he killed her, or that he did any of the raping. So the next day, unfortunately, the jury does decide on lethal injection. The convent is very upset about the death sentence. Bishop Matheson says he believes taking a human life is wrong regardless of the circumstance. And he believes that Sister Tadeo would have wanted him pardoned and not killed. And the prosecution had a witness up there, which was a friend of his, who turned on him for a drug charge, stating that he heard Garrett say frequently what it would be like to have intercourse with a woman, or an old woman, or perhaps maybe even an old dead woman, um, which no. which kind of put a nail in the coffin. Of course. Pun, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> or so, the last straw, I guess I should say. That was awesome. <laughs> You couldn't have done that if you wanted to. Oh my God. A nail in the nun's coffin. Damn. (laughs) On September 20th of 1982, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals denies Garrett's appeal for life in prison. Because he's Mm -hmm. saying, fine, if you say I did it, I'm going to be stuck here. No one's going to believe me, but at least just let me live here and not kill me. And he stated there was insufficient evidence to prove that he killed the nun, just like the defense had said. The next year... April 27th of 1983 this one I even told Russell when I was reading it made me very emotional and I don't know if it's just because I have a son and so you put yourself in, in the shoes yep. of the mother but there was a article that stated he was set for lethal injection for May 30th of 1983 which is really quick considering that's not even a year after mm-hmm. he's convicted it's maybe six months and as soon as the judge says your execution date is set for May 30th of next month his mom's screams and collapses to the floor and he turns around to his mom and says it's okay mama it's gonna be okay I'm gonna be okay and it like Mm -hmm. I had a hard time because I thought what like what would you do how do you handle that, knowing that your son is innocent? Especially if he does have a mental delay or there's something mentally wrong with him, if he's mentally disabled, and there's nothing you can do to help your son. You just
2: spend every day from there on out trying to do your best to prove his innocence. That's all you can do. That's all I would do.
0: And then there's, like, assholes that murdered multiple people and raped multiple people that sit on death row for, like, 15 years. Yes.
2: Mm-hmm. Doesn't make any sense.
1: I think they just wanted to get rid of him as soon as possible.
2: That's what that DA promised that... That it would be swift and quick, and that's what he's trying to do.
1: So that one tugged at my heartstrings Mm -hmm. a little bit to imagine... He's being stronger than she is at that point, you know, telling her he's trying to console his mom. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want her
2: to be upset. So May of 1985, clearly he's been convicted and they reschedule his lethal injection date to May 30th of 1985 this time, not, not, not 1983. So it's odd that it's the same date as what you mentioned in 83. And they ask him, you know, what are your thoughts? And he said, I'm not as afraid for myself as I am my family and friends. He said, I'm ready to go. To the happy hunting grounds, he said he did not expect to get a stay of execution again. He continues to deny that he did not kill her; he wasn't responsible. He said, "I was there. I wanted drugs." But he did say that a companion beat, raped, and strangled the nun, but threatened to harm Garrett's family if he turned on him. That's oh. the only time I read that. I didn't find that anywhere else. But at that point, he makes it sound like he knows who did it,
1: but he's not giving that name but over. He's to the not police. gonna,
2: even if it means he's exonerated. So he. Did did get a stay after his attorneys challenged the dismissal of three jurors who said in the selection process that they could never vote for a death sentence.
1: It doesn't really sound like a unanimous vote in my opinion. I don't think so either.
2: His attorneys also contested the lack of blood test on the semen taken from the nun to determine that it was Garrett. It wasn't even his blood type. So he did get a stay.
1: How would these jurors be able to look at the little bit of evidence there was, which was just the fingerprint on the butter knife that didn't even have blood on it, and the fingerprint on the headboard and determine without a reasonable doubt that he should die for that crime.
2: Remember the state of Amarillo right now. Besides the deaths that we've already mentioned, the two, there were other elderly women that were killed prior to that. At that point in time, all of the elderly women in Amarillo were deathly afraid that they were going to be next. So there was panic going on. It was easy to believe that he was the one that did it. He admitted to being there. We don't know if the public actually got the details that we know now after the fact.
1: When he wasn't even tried for the previous crime that was identical to this one. So if he committed the sister today of Ben's murder, how could he have not committed the Miss Bryson murder if they were identical? Good Why point. wasn't he tried for that? That's a good question.
2: Now we're in October of 1988. He is scheduled to die by lethal injection on Thursday, but this judge Sam Kaiser reset the execution date to December 4th. He did that to give the court more time to consider an appeal. So I think they're trying to gather all of the discrepancies and use them to get him either a stay or a reduced sentence. Some of the things that they wanted to consider were that he was only 17 at the time of the crime. He didn't have very good counsel during the trial. And although that DA keeps saying, you know, that this is one of the meanest of all the murders I've seen, I recognize that people murder people but this was so atrocious and so senseless. I agree, but that doesn't mean that Garrett did it. Then I found an article in June of 1989 in which Garrett's name came up, and it was a new ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court that is actually allowing executions of 16-year-old killers.
1: That's awful. Isn't that sad? I just don't feel that you should be put on the death penalty till you're 18 or over. I think if you're under 18, you should be in juvenile hall. Obviously, if you're 16 or 17 or younger and you're committing murders, there's you something tremendously you wrong some and help. you need to be in a mental institution. Right. Because I can't imagine, unless it's self-defense why a 15 or 16 or 17 year old would kill someone.
2: Yeah, but they were saying in this article, his name was in there because he was under 18 at the time of his arrest, but they were saying that Texas wouldn't have much of an impact to this new law because Texas unlike most of the other ones always has a tradition having the minimum age higher than other states. So in Texas, if you are under 18 you don't go to Huntsville until you turn 18. So you're on death row but you're not actually in Huntsville on the actual death row. You're in in a juvenile hall. I thought that was a little interesting tidbit that that his name came up. So our inmate is On death row, it's January of 92. Finally, people are starting to come to his aid. So Amnesty International and complete opposition of the execution of Garrett, who at this point, his execution date is now February 11th of 92. So we're getting really, really close to the time of him being executed. Amnesty says that Garrett had been a victim of physical and sexual abuse as a child. He was diagnosed as chronically psychotic and suffered brain damage, caused by numerous head injuries and just this week a psychologist found him insane and I don't know why but the jury wasn't able to hear any of this evidence about him being abused physically and sexually.
1: And I wonder why he wasn't given... Because in every other case we've covered so far, the person on trial is always given psychological examination yeah. to determine whether or not they are fit to stand trial. And he wasn't. Probably
2: because it wasn't in the DA's timeline. I guess so. And our DA, that, the Salty DA we just talked about, he says that the allegations of the abuse and insanity were reviewed by the State Court of Criminal Appeals. They're trying to downplay these allegations of abuse Abuse and insanity because it doesn't line up, like I said, with his end game of this execution. He says there's no credible evidence that Garrett was abused as a child or that he's insane. He, quote, this is just stuff he's come up with since he's been on death row for all these years. The other reason that they're really trying to fight for him is that nothing was done for him when he needed help. His attorneys weren't helping him. And then now for the state to execute him for what he became and a crime he committed as a result of the abuse would just be really bad on our part right and then an admission that we still don't know how to i mean his confession wasn't signed so along with the amnesty international we also have the catholic diocese of amarillo is also pleading to let him just have life in prison let's drop the lethal injection they're saying that they're still convinced even 10 years later that he didn't do it and even if he did they're forgiving him like whatever just spare his life he did get another stay of execution which at this point i think it's the third one He's had several. The case will go to the Court of Appeals in New Orleans where they will review all the papers that allege, among other things, that he's insane. And according to the psychiatric reports, him being insane and just not all there. He also believes, and he told this to the psychiatrist that he was talking to, that the lethal injection will not kill him because his the spirit of his deceased aunt will protect him from the fluid and he will not die at the execution. Mm. He really believes that. That's and sad. there was also a little bit of information where they talked about him having multiple personalities. Like during this examination, he talked about the fact that Johnny didn't kill the nun. Aaron did. And Aaron was his other personality. So maybe that's what he meant earlier when he said that one of his companions companions did it, but mm-hmm.
1: he didn't. That makes sense.
2: So this three judge panel in New Orleans said, no, nope, he's going to be executed. We're not. We're not going to listen to any of that. We don't care what you say. A personal appeal from Pope John Paul II. So a letter was written. By him to Ann Richards, who was our awesome Texas governor at the time. And then the um, Catholic diocese and the nuns also wrote all these letters to the governor in the state and said, we need to not do this. So she grants him a 30 day stay, which was pretty rare back then. In fact, I think I read that this was the first time that had happened in like 30 years. So it was really close to the deadline, too, because the three-panel judge in New Orleans said no at, like, 8 p.m., and and Richards gave him the 30-day reprieve at 10 p.m. So it came about two hours before the scheduled execution. What I read is they have to execute you at the crack of dawn. Why is that? I don't know why, but that's what they said. So if you don't get a stay by then, you are, I don't
0: There's know There's got to be a deadline somewhere. Oh,
2: oh my Jesus. God. Yeah, I went there. <laughs> that's definitely a dad joke. <clears throat> So Danny Hill doesn't like the fact that Richards gave the reprieve. He was really pissed off. And he says, It bothers me that we have a governor who would be influenced by such a thing. We are supposed to have separation of church and state. I think Garrett is the exact kind of person that the death penalty was made for. Yeah, It
1: shouldn't really matter where the letters come from. If you are getting that many letters opposing a decision that's going to be made, I believe that warrants you reading the letters, regardless of where they came from. Especially if you have that many. Absolutely. The public is trying to tell you something and you should listen. Mm
2: -hmm. So at that point, Garrett's attorney, Warren Clark, so he said he would ask the state board of pardons and parole to recommend uh, to Richards that his sentence be commuted to life in prison instead of lethal injection. Richards said she was granting the reprieve so that Garrett's defense counsel, again, could talk about any unresolved issues that related to this circumstance surrounding the crime and his background. So basically the abuse and him being insane. Garrett's attorney says for the first time ever, and within days of his execution, he will finally get the chance to present to someone this wealth, they kept calling it wealth of mitigating evidence, which is the abuse that we think justifies changing the death penalty to just life. Hill still doesn't like this. He says, I think this is a, an example of why the public and those of us in the criminal justice system are so frustrated. I think it's absolutely unfair and proper and wrong and a slap in the face of the criminal justice system and the state of Texas that we're allowing yet another stay because of all of the information that came from the Pope. And he's going back to his separation of church to state. He just doesn't like it. Again, he's pissed. It doesn't line up with his, you know, his agenda, his agenda. Yeah. So now we are starting to get more information on his abuse. And there is actually proof of it. So this is the part that got me choked up. Like I... Every time I read this, I wanted to just throw up and cry, but basically when he was three, there was a situation when he's three years old and he would stop crying. They put him on top of a lighted gas heater and he still has the scars. So he has the scars to prove that this actually happened to him. His face was rubbed with urine and feces. He was beaten, raped, forced to scavenge food from garbage bins. His stepfather sexually abused him. His other stepfather, sexually abused him. They pimped him out, forced him to have sex with other men. They filmed it, paid them for it. They could walk with the tapes. So where was his mother in all this? So, so, you know, earlier I was saying how the mother was closing her ears when they were talking about the nun, but if you're, you're going to let this kind of shit happen to your son, how does hearing that kind of stuff make you cringe? They don't talk about her at all when they talk about all of this abuse. I don't understand it.
1: I don't know how a mother wouldn't be able to tell not once, but twice. Exactly. And then if your son is, like you say, has always been a little mentally slow, he would have had a change of character or a change of behavior. Why wouldn't that warrant you to take him to a doctor and find out what's going on with him? Well,
2: it wouldn't you want to watch him extra closely because of that, because he's more vulnerable than your other children, because you said he had two sisters. So And what? they're just
1: lucky they were girls. That's the only reason why they were yeah. not succumbed to the abuse is because they were female. And I guess in that area or during that time, men didn't want girls. They wanted boys. And that's why why he was subjected. And maybe the stepfathers targeted him because he was slow Yeah, and it was easier.
2: And they gave him the drugs and the board still votes 17 to zero. And none of the board members would comment after the decision because the chairman said, do not discuss your ruling. Do not talk about it. This is your decision. Let's go with it and just keep your mouth
1: shut. Regardless of what this poor child has been through, at 17, more than half of his life, almost his entire life, he has been mistreated, which has caused him to maybe commit this crime or maybe not be able to defend himself to show that he didn't do the crime. And no one in the justice system thinks that this child needs a little bit more attention and a little bit more investigation to make 100% sure before we take this child's life, we need to make sure he absolutely did it Mm -hmm. or that he did it in the right state of mind. 17 people agreed that he did not. 17 to 0. That's awful. Makes me so mad. And then
2: so after this this sparks a lot of debate within Amarillo and even outside of Texas. So there was basically a line there's the these people over here that believe that based on his upbringing and his mental capacity that even if he did it he doesn't deserve to die. So they just want his life to be spared. Leave him in prison but spare his life. And then you have the other half that are like just kill him. He deserves to die. Kill him. So there's this giant division of kill him spare him. I also read that they did an informal poll that they posted in the newspaper and it showed that residents were in favor 10 to 1 of his execution. But this goes back to Hill and all his army. Clearly they were infiltrated and they were just like kill him kill him and that one person might have been who knows the it one person that has so, a so logical sad. brain during all this of course texas is coming under complete heavy criticism for allowing both a juvenile and a mentally handicapped person to be executed as we should i'm mm-hmm. disappointed me in our
1: state in this
2: case And Amarillo, come on, man, get your shit together. Okay, so then I have his last words. I'd like to thank my family for loving me and taking care of me. The rest of the world can kiss my ass. And there are different variations of this. We have one website said there were no last words whatsoever. The other ones had this, which is the murderpedia, so we feel like that's a little more credible. And there was another one that had this and then said at the end, he added, I'm innocent, I didn't do it. He gets executed. And so while waiting in the death chamber for a physician to declare him dead, his relatives are crying, repeatedly expressing how much they love him, and they start singing Amazing Grace, which kind of made me want to cry too. Yeah, me too. And so when his family's leaving the prison, there are like 70 people outside, mostly students from the Sam Houston State University. They were cheering and singing, Kill the Freak, Remember the Nun, over and over, and their sign said that,
0: Welcome to the Bible Belt, y'all.
2: No shit. And these are students. Uh, And then there was a smaller group across the street of about 30 people that were just standing there on a candlelight vigil, just not saying anything, they were really against the death penalty, so they were just over there minding their business, but wanted to show their support. And this execution actually sparked a lot of debates over the death penalty in general and prompted lots of protest letters from all around the world. So this this case made national headlines, and because at this point, right, I mean, he's convicted whether or not the evidence matched up. At least let's let him live on prison for the rest of his life so that if something does happen later on, he can be exonerated.
1: I understand that sister, Tadea Benz, she deserves justice for what happened she to her. She That was bad. But what about Johnny's justice? I mean, did his stepfathers go to prison? Doesn't did mention anything those, about them. I mean, or their names. disgusting men that had sex with him or bought videotapes or watched it. What about those people? Like, yes, he may supposedly did this crime, but what about his justice? When he told them what happened, there should have been an investigation on those two men and all those nasty, perverted things that did that to him. Where's the justice? We just ignored that crime, ignored child abuse, just completely acted like it didn't happen.
2: Well, in the minds of the people in Amarillo and all of the people that were involved in the trial in the case, at this point, the murders have stopped. So probably in their mind, not saying I'm not defending them, but my they're thinking, well, the guy's behind bars, so it's not happening anymore So it's even more fuel to the fire that he did
1: it. But even so, he was still a victim.
2: I completely agree.
1: And how can you hear someone allege that somebody else abused them and you just, it goes on deaf ears. How is that okay?
2: That doesn't come out during the trial. It comes out later, but they still have time, still have time to do the right thing and they don't.
1: Even if it doesn't mean that it changes his sentence, at the minimum, they at least go to those men and find the tapes or question them or put them on the stand, you know?
2: Mm -hmm. They contributed to his mental, where he was, his mental state. Not necessarily his um, being slow, but they contributed to the lifestyle that he had to live because of what he had been through.
1: Well, and as I was saying before, whenever the one prosecution witness on the stand, his friend that got rid of a drug charge for being on the prosecution, Mm -hmm. stated that he would ask him, I wonder what it's like to have sex with an old woman. Well, if he'd never slept with anyone but men, I'm sure that was something he wondered about. And having the mental capacity he had, he probably didn't realize what he was saying. But it was a true thought in his head. I've only been with men. It doesn't really seem right, but that's what's happened. I wonder what it's like to be with an old lady. That's a, I mean, I'm not saying it's okay, but in the context of what's that going on, that. I could see why he would wonder that and why he may mention that to a friend. That he thought he could trust.
2: He is executed and everything kind of goes quiet for a while. 2004, we have this Texas attorney named Jesse Quackenbush.
0: Quackenbush. <laughs>
2: Quackenbush. Q-U-A-C-K-E-N-B-U-S-H. Yeah, yeah. I knew you would love that one. (laughs) So this guy is hired by Garrett's family. It's basically about the evidence that was ignored. So he wants to retest the evidence, retest the DNA, go more in depth on his abuse. So it's back in the newspapers again. So, of course, the sisters at the St. Francis Convent are distressed that the case is being revisited. And, you know, so since the death of Sister Benz, they talk about that she was a popular seamstress and she had, they have a, they have a garden in there and she was always tending to the garden. They converted her room into a chapel and kept a candle burning all the time. So no other nun took that room. They left that room sacred and just kept candles burning all the time. So Garrett did admit that he was drunk. He was high on LSD. He broke out the window and went in there to steal a stereo, which is what he said earlier. So he's saying the same thing over and over and over. And so Quackenbush is the first one that shows how obvious the similarities are between the Benz and Bryson murders. The two were slain three months apart in a similar manner in the same part of town. They were so similar that even the DA and detectives were convinced that it was the same guy until the psychic came up. So that's how close they are.
1: But again, Garrett wasn't tried for Bryson's murder. No. Even though he went down for Benz's murder, even though it's supposed to be just like the Bryson murder, he wasn't tried for that one.
2: Nope. So this new name comes up, Liencio Perez Rueda, 54 years old. He confessed to killing Bryson and he's in jail. So Quackenbush goes and talks to him and he admits, yep, I killed Bryson. I raped her. I strangled her. I did it. Evidently, he had obviously, he had confessed it to the cops because he's already in jail, but he also admitted it to this Texas attorney. There's also proof that the Amarillo police department concluded that it was a Hispanic man and that black hairs were found at the scene. But Garrett was white with brown hair. But of course, the police denied that that was even, that was impossible. They didn't say that.
1: And Rueda and Flores were both taken in the first night that Flores was taken in because they were friends and they were both Cuban refugees. Bam. There you go. And Rueda had black curly hair.
2: And the only reason they didn't research him anymore was
1: why? Because Because of of bubbles.
2: Fucking bubbles. Screwing everything up.
1: And they didn't even question him. No. They just cleared him. Like, well,
2: that whenever Flores, no longer a person of interest, that's about the time Bubbles came forward. Right. So then it makes you wonder if Rueta and Bubbles were in cahoots. Like I never made that connection until just now, but they might've been.
1: They were friends. They were, they were both Cuban refugees. They oh. lived in the same place. They worked at the same place. They were Flores? friends flores and rueda no
2: i know i was talking about the psychic bubbles oh i was wondering if bubbles and rueda know each other and so she put it on garrett to get them off the track of rueda so he could split because he went to new mexico or something like that i read piece of shit so Quackenbush is going to pursue a civil case against several government agencies if he doesn't get all of the evidence released. He wants to know everything. He's trying to put everything together. And they're going to cooperate. They're like, yeah, we'll give you the information, but you have to follow protocol and there's paperwork you got to fill out. It's just not that simple. So he finds out Erdman discarded semen samples taken from Benz's autopsy. And well, he actually testified that he threw the samples away because no one told him to save them. Because he's a dumbass. Yeah. And and so Quackenbush contacts Erdman who says he didn't recall the case.
1: Probably one of the most infamous cases in a town where yeah. you worked and you, your first case you worked on and you don't recall. Sounds so, like a bunch of Quackenbush to me. That is a bunch of Quackenbush.
2: So in 2005, they finally get the results of the DNA that was retested, mm-hmm. and the hairs and the semen that they found match Rueda.
1: Shut the front door.
2: So in 2005, he pleads guilty to the rape and murder of Benz.
1: So let me get this straight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: If Garrett had not been executed, he would have been exonerated. Yes, in 2005. Yeah. What does that mean for Texas.
2: That means we killed an innocent man. That means the shame on the jury
1: for just I don't know. The jury didn't get all the information. No, but
2: they Here's the thing. If you're on the jury cuz there there's a documentary and a movie and you guys can watch it. It's it's pretty compelling but even in the movie they there's like most of the jurors are like yeah let's fry him but there's one person that's like we have no evidence Mm -hmm. we have proof that he was in there but there the blood type of the semen doesn't match his and we have no physical evidence tying him to the murder he was there but he lived across the street that doesn't mean that he killed her just because he's there so yeah shame on the jurors because they didn't do their job they just wanted to pile through it and shame on the district attorney for trying to force this quickly. I know that he was doing his job in his mind and trying to keep his word at making it swift, but you don't you do it didn't. right.
1: The jurors, very similar to our previous case, Mr. Tita, the jurors did not get the full amount of information that they needed to properly convict the person. Or they to tell you-
2: They tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt. Oh,
1: absolutely. So
2: as a juror, if they tell me that's my job, I'm going to be that hard-headed bitch that may keep you in there for five weeks. Me too. Until you've answered all of my questions and I'm positive that the decision I'm going to make, which could kill somebody, is the right decision. I agree. So shame on them, shame on the district attorney, shame on his shitty attorneys, and shame on people that sat on it. And good job for this guy, Quackenbush, that decides, I'm going to go research this. It sounds interesting. And then... He ends up helping them clear it. Right.
0: God, Could you imagine, though? I can't even decide what I want to eat at the end of the Dude, day. I, I, but you got to choose if somebody's going to die. Mm-mm.
2: It's not a decision that you take lightly. You consider everything. And, yeah, I don't want to be sequestered for a really long time. But that's a big decision. And I'm not going to make it lightly. And if I piss everybody in there off, I don't care.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree. So one thing that Johnny did do whenever he was in jail, he liked to write letters to his family. He wrote letters to his sister and to his mom. Mm-hmm. And a few days prior to his execution date, so this was the final stay of execution so, he, was res- he was given. So February. Of 1992. There's a three-page letter he writes, but I'm just going to read the third page because there's some information in here that's going to be important. So he states, experience shows me that rape isn't wrong, but you want to punish me for doing what was done to me by your kind. Ooh. What is okay for you? When is it okay for rape? Why is rape okay for me, but not anybody else? Who's wrong here? You think you can scare me with your death? I've faced death before. I've done things that would cause you to cringe from just the rush and the thrill and the prospect of death. I'm resigned to death All people die. I know that if I die, I'm going to die with a clear conscience, a whole spirit, and being a man. I'm going to die an easy death, a warrior's death, but you, society, will live in shame. In your nightmares, I will live. In your times of fear, big or small, I will be. Every frustration in your bitch lives will be me. Every death of your families will be me. I will be the one who meets your families when they cross and they will pay for what you, society, have done to me and my family and friends. I will be the fear you will experience upon your last breath. I curse your souls to the deepest depths of your own hell. Curse your parents' souls to the same hell and your grandparents' souls and your stinking, worm-infested, maggot-ridden ancestors. Wow.
2: That gave me chills when you were reading
1: it. That is a letter of rage if I ever heard one.
2: That man got the last word, which is odd because that's what the name of the documentary and the movie. You found the curse letter on a link on the Murderpedia, right?
1: Yes. The website's called Bloodshed Books, and it's a bunch of prison letters. I
2: didn't find anything in any of the newspaper articles that I read that reference this letter. Me either. And the only, the first notation I found of it was the documentary... And then the documentary references the movie. So I think there's a little bit of liberty here about what happens after the letter. But nonetheless, everything that I'm reading that I'm going to read actually happened. I don't have a timeline. So here's what happens. Dr. Ralph Erdman was indicted for falsifying autopsy reports, committing perjury in dozens of civil and criminal cases. He was convicted and sentenced to prison. His wife died of pancreatic cancer. Among some of the things that they found out about him, how bad he was doing with the evidence, he actually kept the blood samples from the crime scenes in the same refrigerator as his condiments.
1: Wouldn't you hate to get not the condoms ketchup
2: mixed up? Not condoms, but yeah, I'm like, sorry, that's not ketchup. ketchup. No, that's no. blood from a crime scene from 2002. And, and I'm sorry. My bad. God. Can you go ahead and put that back? Let's go it's get a you a little, new burger. It's a little congealed. It's fine. I'll just scrape it off with a knife.
0: A that ain't way. barbecue sauce, y'all. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he actually died in July of 2010 in Dallas. That same year... An attorney, Bill
1: Coleus, who was his first attorney,
2: also died of pancreatic cancer. Kathy Jones, who was an NBC News reporter who chased Garrett's mother into the courthouse bathroom. I didn't find anything about that story previously. She died instantly in a plane crash while covering a story in Oklahoma. So Judge Sam Kaiser and attorney Bruce Sadler were both diagnosed with the same rare form of leukemia. Uh, Sadler struggles with the disease today. Judge Kaiser, who was initially cured, had his doctors extract some of his healthy bone marrow in case the disease came back, which it did. But his sample inexplicably disappeared from the hospital lab and he died within months. Stop it. No, they don't know what happened to it. Task Force members Walt and Jimmy Don also contracted leukemia and died. One of the jurors, Novella Sumner, fell down a flight of stairs in her home and died a week later of complications from her injuries. In the movie, this shows that it happened just within days of the curse letter being read, but she actually died 10 years after the execution. So some of it's a little... It's not immediately. One of the other jurors, Nathan Shackelford, His daughter died from an accidental gunshot wound to the head, and his sister was run over and killed by a drunk driver. Bubbles' husband, Michael Heavy Duty Patterson, was found dead, slumped over the steering wheel of his truck in his driveway, and a cause of death was never determined. Lonnie Watley, a jailhouse snitch, who for a reduced sentence testified at trial that Johnny Frank Garrett admitting killing Sister Bens, committed suicide. Carol Moore, who was Garrett's school teacher, also committed suicide.
1: Did she have anything to do with the trial?
2: I didn't have any of the trial. And, and I know you had some, her name didn't come up, but I know she testified in the documentary. She testifies and maybe does a little bit of an embellishment on how he angry was. he was or okay. clearly she felt guilty about what she did. So the last one, Our salty district attorney, Danny Hill, wait to hear what happened to him. He became addicted to alcohol and prescription drugs after two DWI's fellow prosecutors testified against him in an effort to remove him from office. So on April 9th, 1995, Mr. Hill ended his life with a single gunshot wound to the heart. His younger daughter followed his lead and hung herself a few years later.
1: It is amazing how many people attached to this specific case dies. When I
2: first Heard about this letter and saw the list of people that died after. I thought, wow, this is really compelling. And this guy did get the last word. It's a really good story. Obviously, it doesn't line up with the way the movie makes it look like. It happened in quick succession, one after the other, right after he was executed. But it's odd that all of these people, it wasn't just disease or old age. It was all like maybe they had a guilty conscience and they couldn't live with themselves after finding out that. Garrett was innocent, and that Rueda was the one that actually. Well, that did not happen
1: until 2005, and some of these people true. died. Of That's Jordan. true. That's but true. But I really think, especially Danny Hill, I think his guilt. I mean, he had probably had to drink his sorrows away for what he did. Then prescription drugs helped. Wait, he
2: did, he killed himself in 95, so he killed himself before he knew. Maybe he knew all along that Garrett was innocent. I think he knew all yeah. along.
1: Everything happened in 2005. Yep. So anyone that died before then wouldn't have known to what extent he was innocent. It may have just true. been a hunch they were on. That they That's weren't true. completely sure. But some discrepancies in this case that... I found between the documentary and reading the newspaper is disgusting how poorly this case was laid out. This information came from the papers and the documentary. These were all things that were shown. Most of it was in trial, not all of it. Okay, okay. But these are things that they either didn't put into the trial because they thought it would be in favor of him or the defense attorneys didn't act on to prevent Johnny from going to jail. Okay, fair enough. So number one, as we said, his confession wasn't signed. Mm -hmm. Anybody can type up a confession and say you did it. And why would he say that he drank whiskey and took two shots of acid when he was on drugs his whole life, right? So why would that night be any different, you know? Yeah. I mean, to him, like I drink Diet Coke all the time, right? So if you asked me what to do the other night, I couldn't tell you how many diet cokes I had or if I even had one that night because it's just something I do a lot. So if it's something that he does a lot, how would he really be so specific? But it well, sounds maybe like he's
2: just saying, matter of fact, this is what this is what I do on these nights. I or they want to drink. put into
1: perspective that he was drunk and high and well, didn't know what he was doing under
2: the influence. Yeah.
1: The nuns on several occasions tried to tell the police and the investigators they wanted to go and fight for Johnny after he was arrested. They didn't want to hear the nuns. They No, we don't need to take her testimony. No problem. And what they were trying to tell them is that Johnny would help them in the convent a lot. When they would have new furniture delivered, he would help bring it in. Like beds. Like mm-hmm. headboards. Hmm. And like you've crucifixes. Got to...
2: Shit. Mm-hmm. So you got to hold on to the headboard while you're putting it together.
1: He would, when the weather was bad, he would help clear the lawns. He would fix the rain gutters. Whatever they needed done, if they went across, sent someone across the street to get him, if he was home, he would come over and help. And now knowing what kind of life he lived, no wonder he was ready to leave the house and go Mm -hmm. be in that house. But the nun said that he was amazed by the statues and the crucifixes. They just called to him and one of the nuns said that he would sit and stare at the statues for hours. Wow. Just amazed at, because I know we've been in a few cathedrals, and they're beautiful. They're very beautiful. So he was just in awe of that. So the blood spatters, the blood smears, and the semen mixed with the vaginal fluid that Dr. Ertman just No one told him to keep it. <laughs> He didn't state in so many words, but in a very nonchalant way, he kind of said that the DA told him he wouldn't need them to toss them. Even though they hadn't even been tested or used against, they didn't even have a suspect. At the time that he was told to throw it out. So the little bit that he did save was all they had to go by. So it's almost like Danny Hill knew initially, I don't really know if we're going to find who did it. So the first person that looks good, that's who's going down for Mm -hmm. it. And Dr. Erdman was known as a prosecution whore where... the
0: fuck? (laughs)
1: More and more in cases where the prosecution wanted to win, they basically would tell him, we need a winner. We need to put this guy away. And they would want him to falsify the documents Mm -hmm. like he was in trouble for to make it look in the prosecution's favor so that this person would go down and they would have an open and shut case. Quick. If he did not, he would lose his job. That's what he said when he, whenever he got in trouble, he basically said, well, if I didn't do what they told me to, I was going to lose my job. Well, as a physician, you should want to lose your job if somebody's going to tell you to lie. Mm -hmm. One of the guys in the documentary states that when he would look at ME reports, he would start to notice that. Over and over, the body cavity size would be the same, the blood volume would be the same, the weight of the organs would be the same on person after person, and he never saw them weigh them. Like he said, there was a scale in the room, and many times he'd go in there and it was always clean. And he's like, if anyone's ever been in a room after an autopsy's been done, it is not a pretty sight. And his would be pristine because he didn't do half the work. He He just just copied from the previous report. He just made it look good on paper. Shame on him. The defense attorney that saw this and started seeing how he was falsifying documents said, I can't really say much about Dr. Erdman except he was goofy as a peach orchard boar. (laughs) Yeah. So the clothes that they took from Garrett's home to test... What do you think if he has straddled this woman and he's choked her and even after she's died, if he's raped her and then proceeded to stab her, there'd be some blood on him. There had to be. Right? And if this white shirt was left behind, wouldn't he have had to leave shirtless? hmm Right? Unless he brought an extra
2: white shirt. Like, I don't know. Why, why would you... Unless
1: you're wearing two shirts. I guess. Well, all the clothes he had showed no blood, no samples. His shoes didn't match the shoe prints that were found in the grass surrounding the broken window. There was no glass in his clothes or his shoes, which if he had climbed through a broken window, obviously there'd be glass somewhere. The knives in his house, which... In his testimony, he states he took a knife from his home to stab Sister Tadea Benz. None of the knives matched. Not even the style of the knife matched. The hairs didn't match. The fingerprints didn't match except for the butter knife, which was not the murder weapon. And he already said, yeah, I used that knife to pry open drawers. Yeah, and I'd been in there, so... So that doesn't make sense. And he told them multiple times that he had been there before. Mm -hmm. He knew what it looked like. He knew where the rooms were. And they didn't care. The bishop of the convent reached out to the DA multiple times saying, let me come and tell you about Johnny. I know same with the nuns. We don't need to hear your testimony. Nothing you can say will help us. And nuns and the bishop got very frustrated because they wanted their story heard. One of the nuns did go. They listened to her, but nothing was documented. They basically let her talk. And then when she was done, they sent her back to the convent.
2: So this is why they wrote the letters to the Texas governor, because nobody else would listen to them. Correct. So it's his
1: own damn fault. She went through all everything I, you know, talked about. He is good kid, he not do this. <laughs> and they didn't document that she was there. They didn't document what she said. They just let her talk and then let her leave, and didn't document anything she said. So when you hear all these discrepancies, this is why I said if the jury knew by all these nuns, who again they're not gonna lie, right? Mm -hmm. They've given their life to God to be honest and do everything the Bible says, right? What did What did Johnny call them? Jesus's wives. Yes, (laughs) that's so cute. (laughs) That's so cute. So you hear all that, right? And then. Again, with his shitty attorneys, no one, the defense attorneys didn't go up there and say, we have no evidence. You can't convict him. You know, mm-hmm. they were just like, did enough to get by. I very much agree with you when the juror should have done a better job, but where were the defense attorneys? agree. They had no case for him. They just let him hang. Such a travesty. This so case we makes actually,
2: me. We actually did execute an innocent man.
1: After this case is the first time that's made me question how I feel about the death penalty. And it makes me question our justice system because it's scary. Yeah, just because you
2: were there doesn't mean you you did it. So imagine everywhere you've been today, like where you've been. So if something happens, are you automatically guilty because you were there? That's a little scary. That's a scary thought.
1: Yeah, or even we were at Guitar Center earlier. What if one of my hairs fell on a guitar and somebody bashes someone's head in? Girl, I got your back. Well, you can say I was with you, but that didn't help Johnny either. That's His true. sister said he was with me. We were playing checkers and talking, and listening to music.
2: So, yeah, this was a twisted, really, this case was crazy. It pissed me off.
0: Yeah, it chaps the ass severely. Red ass. It gives you the red ass. It
2: definitely gives you red ass. Mm-hmm. Even though I've never had that, Russell says it's very painful, so I trust him.
1: I live with him, I tell it you. Burns. It's pretty bad.
2: <laughs> so, shame on that freaking psychic. Whatever vision she saw had nothing to do with the well, murder. Well, maybe
1: what she saw was him in the building, which he had maybe. been multiple times.
2: So <sighs> there we have it the case of Johnny, Frank, Garrett, and the nun, Sister Tadea Benz. Hope they rest in peace. I feel bad for his
1: family.
0: I hope that other guy burns in hell.
1: I do, too. Rueda? Ru- Rueda.
0: I hope Rueda burns in hell.
1: Yeah, me too. I hope he dies of gonorrhea and rots in hell. <laughs> you want a football, honey? Lacy, <laughs> Little footballs.
2: Hopefully he's in the federal pound me in the ass prison.
1: hmm <laughs> hmm <laughs> And I hope he's in a room with no walls so he can't put his back to it. <laughs> And there's soaps everywhere. Was that the final
0: (laughs) nail in the coffin? Oh, my God. You're going to
2: leave that in there, right? I am
0: so leaving that shit in there. Awesome.
2: (laughs)
1: Well, that's a wrap.
2: It's a wrap. We thank everybody for listening. Yep, thanks for listening and liking and sharing. We appreciate your support. And um,
0: If anybody has any audio equipment they want to get rid of, just uh, give us a jingle.
2: (laughs) We'll come get it. That's it. Thank
1: you. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye, y'all.
0: Case file 09, Tadea Benz, closed.